Welcome back to Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino, and I'm joined here bar, by our host and star of this show, the Hall of Famer Jim Cott. This is Cott's Corner, episode 436 on our network. Little I Am a Real American. That was picked out by our, our Tuesday guest, Rob Cimarano, 42-year-old pitcher throwing 101 miles an hour out of New Jersey. Hasn't pitched professionally in almost a decade. May get another shot. Uh, he's got a couple workouts coming out, so we tried to promote him. He picked out that song for us this week, so... Um, I thought his story is a great American story. But, uh, Jim, I'll get to our reads in a second, but welcome back to your show. Thank you. Yeah. A lot of stuff uh, a lot of stuff to kick around. And, of course, the, uh, the big news most of the week has been from the football fans and either in favor of or crucifying Dan Campbell. <laughs> yeah, I don't agree with that myself, but we'll get to that. We've got a packed show, and you're the second show of a quadruple header here on Thursday. We start off with Buddy Black, Colorado Rockies skipper. And, and, of course, always love your shows here. We do have a packed one today. But just before we get to it, I want to thank Jaw Bats. RVG at checkout will get you a discount on their great maple bats. Jeff Fry hit a pull-side double in his fantasy camp game, so it tells you right there those are good bats. And then my son Tanner's been using his M110 model, both lefty and righty. Loves the weight distribution on it. So thanks to Jaw Bats. You can get discount on all their apparel using our RVG code. Millions, our newest marketing partner, uh, we are getting an influx of uh, potential sponsors, so we appreciate that. We brought on millions to help us handle that and help stream our podcast to other uh, social mediums. And uh, so they'll, they'll be offic- they're officially with us uh, this Monday. So millions, thank you so much for joining us. And thanks to Sports Podcast Group and the Webbies, two separate groups. We've been nominated for Baseball Podcast of the Year. Um, you know, if we, if we win, everybody's going to get to keep their awards. So we saw that little debacle with ESPN where they had to hand some of their awards back. So there will be none of that with ours. We, we win, we'll keep <laughs> on with that. So with that, yeah, let's get to Dan Campbell. I'm a big fan of his. You and I talked a little bit pre-show through text and whatnot about him, but I love his approach. I, I love how – I love his toughness. Um, he reminds me of the, the good old days, I guess, when, when men could be men out there yeah. and say what they got to say. But I'm, I'm curious to get your take on Dan. Well, you know, he played for my friend Coach Parcells. Uh, oh, that's right. And uh, they communicated a little. So I, uh, I put out a face ca- uh, Facebook post that got some reactions both ways. But what motivated me to do it is I'm watching Greeny uh, by Greenberg. And, and I, I flipped around. I just happened to have it on. And he was going ballistic. And I have a lot of respect for Greeny and his sports knowledge and his passion. But, you know, he was calling for coaching mil- malpractice and everything. And so I said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Let's take a look at why Dan Campbell chose to do that. Now, 10 years ago, Bill Parcells, Bill Walsh, Don Shula, Bell, you can name any of those coaches. There would be no doubt they would have gone for a field goal. But why did Dan Campbell choose to go for it? Because 
He's been drinking from the Kool-Aid that they put on the table by the propeller heads that tell you fourth and something, here's your percentage. What they don't tell you is you don't have a Pop Warner team on the other side of the line. You got the San Francisco 49ers, number one seed. So when you when you look at these statistical analysis, they don't tell you who you're playing, what the score is, and what the situation of the game. In any sport, if you just look at the scoreboard, that will tell you what to do and how to play. I've used the analogy many times with the great Robin Roberts, Hall of Fame right-hand pitcher, when asked, how do you pitch Willie Mays? Tell me the score, the inning, and the count. Yeah. You've and said that every single you. time I've tried to, and I've, it's my mistake. I've asked you that with a thousand different situations, and you always go back to that. And that's yeah. It's, and so you know, and, and Dad, there's there's no question in my mind. I mean, he's a young coach. He's passionate, and if he had Bill Parcells at his side, or Bill Belichick, or Bill Walsh as a consultant, I'm sure they'd say, "Hey, let's look at the scoreboard. You're up 14. You can go up 17, and and you only have a quarter and a half left." But, you know, he has been he has been drinking that Kool-Aid and they flash it on the screen. Those that have never played and you kind of say, OK, you know, the percentages say we can do this. We can do this. Yeah, they probably can against maybe a weaker defense. But uh, at that particular situation, it wasn't the thing to do. So I wasn't supporting Dan so much in in the decision he made. But for the beating he took for it, let's start looking at the statistical analysis geniuses that are influencing these coaches, and then we'll take it right into managing. The most recent and famous one is when Kevin Cash took Blake Snell out when he was pitching like Sandy Koufax against the Dodgers, and they didn't want him to face Mookie Betts for the third time. And if you... If Kevin Cash were managing the Rays 15 years ago, that wouldn't even be a question. So that's the kind of influence that these statistical analyses are having. And they hurt your team as much as they help your team. No matter what those percentages say, if you're a player and you're between the lines, just look up at the scoreboard and that will tell you what to do. Yeah. So I, I you know, I just, uh, I'm, I'm sure Dan has, has heard from a lot of, uh, senior coaches that have probably said, you know, you really should have kicked the field goal. But in the heat of the moment, based on all the information that's been thrown at him, he, he decided to go for it. And uh, again, it's just like second guessing a pitcher. You know, if the pitch works out, fine. But if it doesn't, uh, you're leaving yourself open. And, and truth be known, the Lions, the way they played the last quarter and a half didn't deserve to win because they, they fumbled, they dropped passes. Uh, they had penalties, uh, you know, they just imploded. So it wasn't just those decisions. But I have a feeling if he would have uh, kept going for a field goal and made it, I think their chances would have been pretty good to win the game. Yeah, it, it, in watching that as well, he, he's been that way all year. He's been aggressive. And the part that concerns me, because I, I do like the way he deals with players. I like his aggressiveness. I like his, you know, he's... He's like Parcells. He's a no-nonsense, hard-line guy. His teams traditionally had the way they played in the last quarter and a half, just awful. But that That's not how they've played all year. They've, they haven't been a penalty team, haven't been a turnover team. He prides himself on that old style. I wonder um, how much these young coaches 
lack in terms of that internal GPS, let's say, to to understand the instincts of the game anymore because they've been they've come up in a time that's much different than than you or I, where um, even though he was with Parcells, where they've elevated their their careers based on you know buying into these numbers. Yeah, I, I think now I'll, I'll use an example. Tom Kelly, who is probably one of the most successful but uh, unheard of managers for a lot of baseball fans, two World Series wins with the Twins with in a small market with small payrolls within five years. When TK uh, took over the team as a manager, he brought in Ralph Hout to sit in the dugout with him and just to kind of be an extra set of eyes and ears. And so that may be... Uh, when organizations hire these young coaches that haven't had the experience that some of the old Hall of Fame veterans have, is that uh, get a guy on your staff to stand by your side or be available. And I'm sure if Dan Campbell had that, uh, you know, he he would. <laughs> uh, the wisdom from one of the older coaches would said, "Look, you know, l- let's look at the scoreboard here. Let's go kick, try to kick the field goal." So I think that's a that's a mistake, as you mentioned that. The young coaches and managers now coming up in a different era, uh, they just they just look at things differently. Yeah, I and it's the difference between the 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 analytics guys and numbers guys, the ones that have never played. They live a little bit, well, not a little bit. They live totally in a bubble in a vacuum, and information is totally different than intelligence. And I think information, if applied by somebody who has the instincts, who has the experience. Um, now it turns into intelligence, and I hope that's. I hope Dan Campbell learns from that. Experience. Yeah, I, you know, I, I don't, I don't think they do. I don't think the uh, the statistical people can do that. But what you have to do with all this information is look at who you're playing and how are your guys playing, uh, and and they they basically deal in averages. So they'll say, well, 300 times in the NFL, they went for it on fourth and two, and they made it uh, 240. So the percentages, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, it's like I I use a reference with spin on a curveball. You know, we're we're all into these spin rates and exit velocity and all these numbers that have invaded all sports and have taken the the art and the skill and the athlete's brain power away from turn them into uh, robots. But they'll say, well, Johnny Jones has the second best spin on his curveball in the major leagues. So maybe you're doing a game and you see that flash and you say, well, you ought to throw a curveball right here. Well, what if he's facing Mike Trout in the eighth inning with a winning run on second or Johnny Smith in the bottom of the second, the number eight hitter hitting a buck 80. Now is his spin rate going to be the same against Mike Trout that it was against that guy? That's what I want to know. So, uh, again, it's the game situation that will kind of dictate what you do as a player and I'm sure what you do as a coach and a manager. But unfortunately, uh, that's been stripped away a bit because they're so beholden to these percentages that are handed to them. And all they are is averages league-wide. They're not specific to what's going on today. Yeah. I had a chance to talk to uh, Red Sox great Nomar garcia Para last week. And he used, I'm going to give him credit for this. Um, we were talking data and analytics, and he, he's in the same line we are. And he broke down something I said. So he made, made sense. That's, I guess that's the analyst in him. He said, there's a big difference between being data-informed and data-driven. And he said, I'm all right with being data-informed. 
but I don't want my decisions being driven by that data. I want to make the decision. I thought that yeah. was pretty profound. I mean, simple and complex all at one time. Um, how would you How would you handle all that with today? I mean, would you, I'm sure you'd love to know information, but you're obviously we know you you wouldn't be driven by it. Well, you know, being it's so hard to compare what what athletes and coaches and managers do today versus what they did decades ago because we were raised differently. So giving all the history of the way I was raised to play the game and decisions I had to make, and then given that backlog of information and I would hope wisdom, you know, today would be, you know, I wouldn't accept it. But if I were born in 1998 instead of 1938, I would probably say, well, this is the way it is. So I might fall right in line with it. Uh, so it's, it's just hard to, yeah. you know, when you, when you look at the pitchers and what they're doing and they're all chasing velocity. And, but when you look at the contracts and the money that guys have made or are making who have had one or two surgeries in short careers, you can understand why they're saying, look, I, I, I want to do whatever I can to throw it 98 and I get it up there and I have two or three good years. I was going to save that till later. I had it written down. But the, the glaring example right now is James Paxton with the Los Angeles Dodgers. Now, he came up, he had one year where he pitched 160 innings and won 15 games. And he's parlayed that into some contracts where, as of this year, he's earned about $50 million. Uh, but he's been on the dis, uh, injured list a majority of his career. He uh, doesn't have a lot of starts, a lot of decisions, and the Dodgers now have given him this incentive-laden contract. I mean, if he sign, I think he gets four million up front, uh, and then a three million dollar bonus if he's on the active roster, healthy enough to be on the roster on opening day. That's a pretty good coup, pretty good perk. Uh, and then if he starts twelve games. He gets a six, another 600000 per start, then 14, 16, 18. So what they're doing is they're rewarding, they're rewarding on the big league level kind of mediocrity. If you, if you start 18 games and you pitch 160 innings, we're going to give you $13 million. Well, if you're the player and you're looking at that and you're saying, well, I'm going to do whatever I can to, you know, to get my velocity up and, and make sure I make the staff. And, and so baseball is kind of, shooting themselves in the foot by rewarding uh, velocity and not emphasizing uh, sound mechanics and a good motion and consistently and throwing strikes and be in our organization for 15 years. They don't look at that. Yeah. Um, I mean, how do you think that'll motivate or not motivate Paxton is, I mean, today's player is much, very much aware of what's tolerated, what they're going to be paid, how they're going to be paid, when they're going to be paid. Well, if I, if I were James Paxton, he's 35 years old. Now, I, I sort of, with the help of Johnny Sane, reinvented my career at age 35. And it was very fortunate that uh, I didn't get any $3 million bonus, but I got another, you know, nine years in the big leagues. But uh, so if I'm 35 and I know those rewards are out there, I might make sure in spring training I'm not going to do anything to injure myself. So first of all, I want to be on the active roster on opening day even if I have to lob it up there and keep from hurting my arm. Uh, and then I'm going to get 3 million bucks. And then I'm going to make sure I get enough rest between starts so that I can get to 12 and then 14. Now, 
Bill Parcells always had a line when he looked at a player. He's got a lot of great lines, but he said, I want to find guys who are looking at the greater good of the team. Well, see, now you're creating an atmosphere where the guys don't have to look at the greater good for the team. They have to look at what can I do to stay healthy enough to start 15 or 16 games and pitch 150 innings and earn my $13 million. Well, you want a guy that says, I don't care where you put me. I'm ready to pitch every day or every fourth day, and I'll figure out a way to do it, even if my elbow is hurting a little or whatever. And, and we just we just don't have that anymore. We, we have lost, uh, we being baseball, the, uh, the ability to develop uh, durable uh, pitchers that can – that can give you like Garrett Cole is, is the gold standard out there in terms of his motion and what he does, but uh, they're few and far between. When you look at that Dodgers staff, they must set a record for signing pitchers. It, it must be part of the requirement to have had surgery to be on their staff. So Otani's had two. Yamamoto has a clause that if he does have Tommy John surgery, misses X amount of days, uh, he can opt out, and his contract's different. Walker Bueller's had two Tommy John surgeries. Uh, Derek May has had elbow surgery. Uh, Clayton Kershaw, back surgery. And so it goes to our conversations with Jim Colonel, who has data and video to support how guys should be delivering the ball, but they're not going to do it because all they want to do is find out a way to throw as fast as they can, as soon as they can, and get a few good years in and earn a lot of money. And uh, that's unfortunate, but that's the way the game is today. Is it is it possible to, and as you're talking about Bill Parcells, it, my heart gets warm because my all-time favorite, any sport. And is it possible to get back to that time based on how these players are incentivized with their contracts? As you, as you stated, it's it, it basically motivates them to be mediocre. So are we able, will, can we get back to that time where, you know, whether it's adjusting incentive packages or mentality to where players do perform for the greater good of the team? I, I don't, I don't think they can the way the game is heading. I don't see it. Uh, I don't see it changing. Uh, I know in talking to coach in the past in football where it changed is, you know, he was a guy say on Friday afternoon or Thursday, whatever the day was, it was full pad contact practice. You know, now they practice in shorts and they, they run around, and they barely touch each other. So first of all, those old time coaches would have a, a hard time adjusting to that. And the same way would be in baseball. You know, guys, spring training, they get days off. They have, you know, show up at the park at 11. There, there just isn't the time and the repetitions uh, put in uh, to develop the kind of skills that you need to do time and time again. Yeah. So I don't know if coaches could adjust and I don't know if we could get back to it uh, because it's just, uh, you know, it's a rolling snowball going downhill that is just uh, picking up momentum every, every year. We see more and more surgeries. I, I, I think I mentioned uh, on a previous show, probably the only answer to at least the, the injury factor is a shorter season. And, you know, owners won't, won't go to that because, uh, as you saw, the Orioles just sold for $1.7 billion, which is 10 times what Peter Angelos paid for them in 1993. So uh, 
you know, the, the number of games and the games on TV and all of that exposure, the owners, they'd play 200 games if they could. Yeah. But from oh, a fewer, pure quality of the game standpoint and keeping the players on the field more, uh, a shorter season would make sense. But uh, I don't see that happening either. All that would be for the greater good of the game. Yeah. But there's no more. I mean, Bowie Kuhn had that saying for years, best interest of the game. And I remember calling him in 1981. In fact, he put it in his book. I said, if you can invoke in the best interest of the game, you need to get these owners to the table and tell them the players aren't caving in. And that was 1981. And I was 42 going on 43. And I said, the money that I'm giving up, I will never get back because I won't play long enough. So if anybody had reason to vote against this, it would be me. But I'm not because we have always gotten the best of the owners by hanging together. Yeah. And 51 days later, the strike is settled and it uh, scared a lot of people. I mean, it didn't scare them off, but we lost a lot of fans with that. But uh, they don't they don't want a shorter uh, uh, they don't want a shorter season. They don't. Uh, they want to play as many as they can and, and get as much uh, exposure with all the side programming and streaming and merchandising, et cetera. Yeah. Do you, and I know it's hard to speak for all players out there, but do you think for the greater good of the game, players, would, if they shorten the season, would be willing to scale back contracts to reflect that? Or do you think that would be a rub with agents more so than the players? I, I think with the agents and the players association, that's a that's a non-starter. You know, I, I did find out when uh, I inquired about why wouldn't the Dodgers be forced to pay to claim all seven hundred million of Otani's income this year and pay the luxury tax? And I never thought of this, but. The reason they can't do it is they never get the Players Association to approve of it. Because what that would do is it would discourage some owners from giving out those lavish contracts. You know, just like with the Angelos selling the Orioles. They may have a few players there that have two, three, four-year deals. Well, they don't have to worry about that. It's like when uh, when Jeffrey Loria signed Stanton to that big deal in, in Miami, Uh he even told me in spring training, I won't own the team for that entire contract, and he hasn't. So he uh, he made a nice dollar on selling it, which is which is why guys get into the sports franchise, because you make your money when you sell it, and then you're not obligated to pay out those longer-term contracts. Yeah, no, it's the uh, it, it is a mess. I, I love the idea. Again, I think if we started with that shorter season, which I hope you get credit for if they ever go back – to do that Memorial Day to Labor Day is perfect. And you talked football earlier. F forget the injury standpoint, but as baseball gets into September, October, it kind of loses itself to college football nowadays. When you don't you think? Yeah, I don't know how the uh, I don't know how the ratings. You mean the NFL loses itself or baseball? Oh no, base yeah, baseball. Oh, yeah, well, baseball. Much. And that that was my point years ago. Is that. You know, the reason baseball became America's pastime is right after World War II, when my dad took me to first, see my first games, 1946. The NFL, the uh, NBA, the PGA, none of those things had the appeal that baseball did. And so baseball became our national pastime, 154 games. They owned the summer, great radio game, no other competition now. 
I mean, the Super Bowl's coming up in early February when the pitchers and catchers report. So now all these sports are encroaching on what baseball used to have. So if you really want the quality and the popularity of the game to be at its best, you would have to say, let's look at these other sports. They're now playing into our territory. So maybe we should play from Memorial Day to Labor Day. Now, again, that's me talking fantasy talk because that's not going to happen. But that's what in my opinion, should happen to make baseball uh, popular again. It's, uh, uh, you know, even basketball. I was surprised at this. The, the women's LSU South Carolina basketball game drew more viewership than the Heat Celtics basketball game. Oh, wow. So there's a lot of different sports that people are following and encroaching on uh, on the eyeballs that are watching these different sports. And Baseball is lucky as it is that once football ends here and then the NBA and the NHL, of course, go on into June, but uh, they still have a pretty good chunk of time where they own the sports fan. Yeah. I often wonder about those marketing numbers that they put out too, that uh, who, who's putting them out. They're so self-serving sometimes. I never, tr- I don't even trust them anymore because we've seen major league front major league office put them out saying the game has never been more popular. Yeah. And who puts it out is there? Well, I know, I know from a revenue standpoint, you know, that's, that's factual. They, uh, they drew more people. They had more revenue last year. Now, a lot of that might be because you know, ticket, ticket prices have gone up and, and everything else when you go to a ball game now has gone up. Uh, so, you know, the revenue and everything is, is gone up. And, and Rob uh, Manfred says, you know, we're, we're very healthy, better than we've ever been from that standpoint, but from a popularity standpoint, no. I mean, baseball has to admit the NFL is the king of sports among the American sports fan. Yeah. Maybe NASCAR is a close second. Yeah, I learned about NASCAR when I coached in the state of Alabama. Uh, That's where I am right now. You're in the state of – I had uh, – Talladega was where I got my – that's where I got my – I learned about the, the race car industry. Uh, yeah, time. I'm in uh, I'm in Montgomery speaking to the uh, Alabama baseball coaches this evening, which could be interesting because as you and I have talked, they uh, they will they will probably not agree with a lot of what I have to say. <laughs> I don't know. I think you're I I think you're in a state right now where I joked when I lived there. I'm, I'm old fashioned. It was my first Division One head coaching job, and. Uh, I felt like even though I was old fashioned, I was, I had traveled back in time. So you and I may have hung on long enough to you. You could have found your home state there. They may be right in vogue. With, now, where, where did you coach in Alabama? Jacksonville State University. Okay. Which is not on any state maps. Little division one program in between Birmingham and Atlanta. Yeah. Uh, beautiful little town. And um, it was a great place for a first time head coach to coach, especially somebody like myself. Wasn't a lot to do, um, very much in the community. And I joked with people because I came right from New York. And I said, I found more similarities than dissimilarities there than one would think. And, you know, people had, families still had dinners together. Right. People, people went to church on Sundays. Oh, yeah. They didn't have back backyards fenced in. It was a front front porch community where everybody's on their front porch talking. Yeah. And uh, the only thing I couldn't get used to, you may get see to hear this tonight, I still couldn't say y'all 
still came oh, out. Yeah. Use guys. Well, you know, the other the other night I went to a great concert. Adam Wainwright, a retired Cardinal pitcher, is now becoming a country western singer. And he and his group performed. It was a benefit for Habitat for Humanity. And one of the songs he wrote and sang was called Hi, Y'all. <laughs> you know, and, and he sang why they say hi, y'all, and that's all part of it. But, yeah, I, I get used to that, and I get used to being called Mr. Jim. Yep. Yeah. Mr. Dave, I was called. and Now, was that baseball or basketball? I went down there as the basketball coach. Okay. Yep. And I, uh, the other thing I couldn't get used to, I took me, I used to kick, I'm, now I have a foreign language background, so I, I don't say I have fluency, but I can survive in roughly 40, I'd say 42 languages. Wow. Um, that was my toughest one, going from New York to Alabama. And I used to, <laughs> yeah. I carried an index card around, and when I would hear phrases, um, like fixing to, I didn't know what that right. meant. Um, oh, yeah. And I used to joke with the kids. I said, Mike could is not a verb. You can't say right. Mike could. I'll, I'll adapt everything else but that. But y'all was the funniest one. They tried to get me to say it on my little commercials. Yeah. And I, just, I said, I can't say it. I said, let me say use guys. It comes out. I'm from New York. You can make me a parody. <laughs> but uh, yeah, great place. Great place to start a coaching career. And country singer wise, one of my biggest boosters, well, not, you know, he was a board of trustee, was Randy Owens. He's the lead singer in Alabama. Uh-huh. And, uh I did not know anything about Alabama, uh, the, the, the band. And he grabbed me the first day there and he said, why are we hiring an old boy from New York to coach our team here? Um, I never heard of you. And I was 28. A little bit. Uh, I probably do a do over on this one because I could have got fired on the spot. And I, and I said, and you are. And he said, Randy Owens. Uh, and I said, I never heard of you either. So we're even, I guess. And uh, the, he said, boy, either you, you got the greatest sense of humor or you're dumb as rocks. He goes, but let's go golfing. So I kept my job <laughs> that day. But uh, yeah, good good place. You'll enjoy the the coaches down there. Alabama's, I think, uh, it's a it's a good state for baseball. I think it needs yeah. attention, like you're giving it um, some good coaches down there, and, and they stay put. They're not jumping around places like most of our world is. So, and yeah, uh, well, I'm looking forward to it. What is your talk on tonight? I'll probably just talk about my career. You know, similar to. Uh, my induction speech, you know, the, the influence my parents had and having guys like Jack McKeon, who without them, I, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't be, I don't think I'd have been a major league player. And then for the, for the young players that are there, I think the, the three things that, uh, that might be slipping away from us as athletes, uh, our curiosity, accountability, and humility. I like that. And, uh, so uh, I'll probably point out these last five Hall of Fame inductees to me are as good a models as you could have. You know, I spent time with Fred McGriff and Scott Rowland last year. No Joe Mauer well from Minnesota. Now you got Todd Helton and then you got Adrian Beltre. And I think if you look at those five guys, uh, the way they played the game, the way they conducted themselves, those are five guys that, as a coach, you would say, you know, be like them. Yep. Uh, so I think the Hall of Fame is, is very fortunate to get those those five guys. But, you know, that's uh, – you know, I, I, I still don't understand how coaches – I don't know if Parcells would have done it – how they could tolerate this celebration after a touchdown. I guess we've just come to accept it now. But yeah. I just think that's so unprofessional. And, uh, you know, the, the time you celebrate is when you got the last out or you – the clock ticks down to zero and you got the win. Uh, you know, look at all the celebrating the Lions did and they ended up losing the game. So 
uh, you know, all that, all that stuff like that. I think the humility of an athlete has, has uh, gone by the wayside, not completely. There are still some good ones out there. Uh, got Kirk Cousins, who grew up in my home area, solid young man. And then I think the, uh, the accountability, it's so easy now. Well, the coach told me to do it because, you know, they, they don't have to take ownership of their, of their position and curiosity, uh, you know, before, before video and, and before iPads and things like that, uh, we went to the guys that actually did it like Warren Spahn or Robin Roberts or Whitey Ford. How'd you do this? How'd you throw that? Now they just go to a model on a computer that somebody from driveline or wherever has put on the screen. So they're not curious about, you know, I, I don't, I don't care what that says. Like, like Nomar had told you, uh, I want to be data informed, but not driven. So, you know, if I got all this information, but I want to know, you know, how this guy held his fastball or if, if Atlanta was coming into town and, and uh, uh, say Cincinnati or somebody had faced him, I want to go to one of the pictures I saw where Murphy was on a hot seat. Hey, what's Murph been hitting? How's he doing? You, you wanted to find stuff like that out because that's the only way you could find it out. Where's his place in baseball? Dale Murphy, I think you're talking about, right? Yeah, he should be in the Hall of Fame. I, I don't understand it. I, of course, now living in Georgia and being in the South, a lot of Braves fans. And when I look at Murph's record, two-time MVP, he was the best player on his team. Uh, when I heard the the qualified guys that I consider qualified guys, like Jason Stark and Joel Sherman, uh, Joel used the term a co-star and a star. Some players are co-stars, and they may have – uh, difficulty getting in, in the Hall of Fame. The five guys I just mentioned are all stars. And to me, Dale Murphy, for those a few years, and some will say, well, he only had six, five or six good years. Well, Sandy Koufax had five good years, but five or six, but they were dominant years. And I like to think Murph was the star of that team and was a dominant player. And I just don't understand if I were to get on a committee that when he was eligible, I would certainly speak my piece because in the latter part of my career, I was playing against the Braves when they had Murphy and Horner. Yeah. And, and what a combination they were. He was the, he's the guy and in my mind anyway, when you think about the eighties, he's the center yeah. fielder to beat. Yeah. And that's, that's a shame. When you mentioned those three traits, I love, I wrote them down, curiosity, accountability, humility. I always pick up some words that, that you, you present uh, very eloquently each podcast we do. Um, where does, and, and the, the first part of this word, it's, it's going to sound negative, but it's not. It's meant in a positive way. But where does pathological self-confidence come in? We, we see all these guys celebrating. It's beyond pathological. But in order to make it, you've got to have that balance between that pathological self-confidence and humility, I think. Um. Boy, I have to give that some thought. I mean, I, I think humility is just um, not making yourself the center of attention. And it's kind of an old cliche, but just acting like, hey, you know, this is what I do. You know, I don't have to jump up and down, stand on my head or do a dance. That's what I do. I score touchdowns. Or, you know, I don't think you see – you'll see some emotional outbursts, which are certainly understandable. I mean – when you're involved in a game out between the lines, it's emotional and you hit a home run or 
Now, pitchers, we were different. We were always trained to keep our emotions in check. But, you know, I remember when Joe Carter hit the home run for Toronto and and things like that. Those are spontaneous. Uh, they're, they're acceptable. That doesn't annoy anybody. But these choreographed ones. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and the, I think the self-confidence and the humility kind of go together is that uh, when you when you do something spectacular uh, on a field, helps your team win, uh, you just kind of feel like that's, well, that's business as usual for me. That's what I do. Yeah. And so I, the, I like the guys that, you know, like Derek Jeter that treated it that way. Yeah. So the, the more confident you are, the less flamboyant you have to be, which exudes humility. That's uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think like, so. Yeah, I like that a lot. Um, you, you had mentioned, and I, I always do this to to our podcast. I kind of take us in a direction, but you were talking about uh, some of the the stuff with Jim Colonel that you were you were looking at um, uh, of uh, the tap pitching, the athletic pitcher. Before I sidetracked us into talking about your speech and whatnot, but I thought that I always love to hear about what you're talking about. Um, What's what's he have to offer now? I know you had some conversations with him offline. Well, I I think as I've gotten to to know from a distance, you know, Jim through text and through his video, and I, and I apply it to my own career, and I I didn't have a, a perfect motion by any means, but some of us get by with less than perfect mechanics because we do them over and over again, and somehow our body adapts and we don't hurt ourselves. Uh, but I think if, if some of these organizations, when I look at the Dodgers and, uh, and all the injuries and surgeries that they've had, I wonder why they don't have a guy like Jim Colonel. And I haven't met anybody out there that has the kind of data and information that he can show you. This is why this guy's elbow is going to break down. So if I were in charge Knowing what I know now, if I were in charge of a minor league department, I would say, well, Jim, come on down here and I want you to look at all of our guys. And you're not going to reinvent the wheel and change every part of his motion, but you might be able to point out a few things that are really red flags. And I think maybe the best thing he could do, and and if I were in his shoes, it's what I would do. He, He likes Fergie Jenkins, Steve Carlton, Nolan Ryan. I think Catfish Hunter, and in today's game, Garrett Cole. So I would take the video of those motions, and I've looked at them, and how I wish I had the same kinetic uh, flow to my motion uh, that they did, the way they got the ball out of the glove, up in the throwing position. They didn't swing their leg around. Uh, I never realized that until I saw it in detail, playing with lefty for several years, Steve Carlton, but that's what I would do because to look at all the flawed motions, uh, it's kind of a, it's kind of a waste of time because I would say 90% of them out there are flawed. And the reason they're flawed is that pitchers are encouraged to chase velocity and, uh, and not proper mechanics to where they can throw strikes consistently. You know our friend James Matthews from uh, New Zealand. Yeah. And when I saw James when he was nine, and then he came down to a camp there with you when he's last year, two years ago, I think when he was 14 or 15. Yeah, last two years he's been down. And the Duke coach saw him and, and loved him. He's a great athlete, plays shortstop, he can pitch, he's a good basketball player. But the number one thing that immediately comes up, we wish James could throw a little harder. 
Yeah. Well, James is 15. Uh, I'll quickly go back to 1957. My first year in the minor leagues, uh, 6'3", 185. I had grown quickly. I was kind of like Marmaduke, elbows flying all over the place. And the manager at the end of that year said, kid, if you come up with a fastball, you got a chance. And then the next year I was at 6'4", 220, and I did have a fastball, and things came together. But if they were to say to me at 15, you need to throw harder. Well, the first thing I'd do is tr- I wouldn't pay any attention to a smooth motion. I would just figure out a way. I'd want to be a cricket bowler yeah, like they do in cricket where you get a two, two or three-yard head start running toward the plate. Maybe that's what we need in baseball to cut down on the injuries. But, uh, yeah, I, I think uh, I think that's, you know, with guys like James, that really, that really hurts them is chasing this velocity because you're you're go- you're not going to have unless you're a big strong guy like Garrett Cole or Nolan Ryan uh lefty was was strong Fergie was just fluid fluid motion from you know and he wasn't a he wasn't an overpowering pitcher yet he struck out more than 3000 walked fewer than 1000 uh and i i just think uh the injuries are caused by guys wanting to throw too fast too young it's not a surprise I think you're on to something with cricket as well. You mentioned that the very first time we met, very first conversation we had, and I've looked into it. There's actually a, a, a little episode on Netflix that's chronicling two cricket players from the hitting position now, which, again, if you've ever tried to play cricket from the hitting position, I've tried. It's it's tough. Um, those guys are humming it in there, and uh, to hit it off that bounce uh, occasionally is tough too. Uh, but I think you're on to something. I really do think that motion – is a potential it's a potential target for our our teachers and coaches over here if they ever got into it yeah. well you know if i if i go back to james real quickly yeah I, I saw james when he was nine in new zealand and i was new there the kids it was new baseball was new to them and i just had them all kind of go through their pitching motion and when james got there you know obviously at nine years old not very big he throws a couple pitches, and I looked at uh, Marty Grant, the coach there, and I said, Marty, who's that kid? And James's mother, Meg, who we've now become good friends, as you have, she comes running over. She said, that's my son, James. Did he do something wrong? <laughs> I said, no, he's got the best pitching motion here. How long has he been playing baseball? They said, well, she said, well, he just took it up because he likes cricket. I mean, he played cricket, but he likes baseball better. So he got the mechanics of his motion from being a cricket bowler. Yeah, so I, I, I think there's a. It might be a good way to train our pitchers. <laughs> well, I I thought about as we we try to bang the drum with our development systems here in the U.S. I thought about this the other day. I was like, why why don't we take our show on the road? Why don't we find a a country that's receptive to what we're doing? And and maybe it is a cricket country uh, that we can uh, start fresh and we don't have to. The hard part is unteaching all that's been learned. Um, it takes more effort than actual teaching. Uh, with that, but you made me laugh when you when she said, "Did James do anything wrong?" I don't think James has ever done anything wrong. No, <laughs> well, you you talk about unteaching, and I think that's what what frustrates uh, Jim Colonel is we have, you know, a lot of these draft prospects and potential draft uh, choices that played college ball, high school ball, now they get into pro ball, and from chasing velocity, their motions are already flawed. And then you try to go back and say, well, no, you got to do this. Well, I can't throw 98 doing that. And uh, so that's the battle. So the answer is we got to catch 
we got to catch kids when they're 9, 10, 11 years old. Uh, be nice if we had a, a, a private plane. We go around the country and have clinics all over with 12, 13 year olds and younger and, and show these videos of the five guys I mentioned and say, if you're going to be a pitcher, this is what you want to strive to do. Yeah. You know, Jim, they're doing it with all the positions now too. When you watch shortstops throw at, at some of these showcases, they're taking three, four, five crow hops and they're cutting loose. Um, they're at the, my son and my older son, David is a shortstop, my ninth grader. And, uh, I won't let him do those, you know, cause that's not baseball. And, uh, my son Tanner, as you know, he's a catcher and they start emphasizing powerful arms at a young age with the catchers. And honestly, we went backwards with it. We, we talked to him about receiving, about blocking, about understanding how to command a defense, um, all the nuances before, uh, and throwing was always, Hey, let's just keep it straight. Let's have a quick release. Your body's going to tell you when it's time to speed up. And what's interesting now is he's eighth grade and all those kids that had those ridiculously strong arms there, you catch up to it, but they still can't receive. They still can't block. They still can't command the field. And, um, I just, I just wait for our parents to wake up. In the meantime, I've told my kids and kids like James, Hey, just keep doing what you're doing. Because if today's generation doesn't wake up and parents don't wake up, you're going to have a field day someday when, as you get older because they're not going to be able to compete with your yeah. fundamentals, your toughness, your intelligence, your curiosity, the, st- the, the stuff you mentioned, accountability, humility. I think it's, uh, it's a great message tonight. Now, let me ask you about your, your catching. Now, are you training him to catch on one leg splayed out like they do today? Oh, absolutely not. We, okay. uh, yeah. yeah, no, no way in heck. In fact, he... Everything that's being shown out there, we do the opposite. Um, we don't we don't reach out for strikes. We catch the ball as deep as we can, so the umpire has as long a time possible to to see the strike. And I think it's better for transfer when you're throwing. The, the when you're on that plane of your body, it's a much easier transfer to your throwing shoulder than if you're reaching out and pulling it back. And uh, the one knee and and Tanner's old 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 fashioned at heart, he can do it. But like he'll go down. I've seen him go down on one knee off of two knees where a pitch is low and he's getting himself even lower. Uh, but it's, it's, it's not premeditated. It's an athletic move to just uh, get his flexibility down with a pitch, but blocking too, something kids don't do. And I, I'd make him, I don't care what inning it is. I don't care if there's nobody on base, block the ball, get, get yeah. better at it and give your pitcher confidence to let him know early in the game. doesn't matter what you throw today, how far it off they ain't getting by me. Yeah. Um, gives him confidence. You know, tying, tying that into pitching, uh, and we talked about Jim's models, Jim Colonel's models. And those of you that don't know Jim, he was a, a Yankee prospect back in the 70s through hard shoulder injury, career ended, got into coaching, researched the pitching motion and has some great ideas on what the proper motion should be. But with video, if I were to take a catcher in, in the recent years and make a video to show young catchers, it might be a name you may have not heard a lot of, it, but it would be Jerry Grody. Remember that name? I do, yeah. Yeah. Jerry Grody of the Mets. I think even my friend Tim McCarver, uh, they battled. They didn't like each other. But Timmy would always say, this guy, is, you know, he knows how to catch. And, of course, he was Tom Seaver's catcher. But he would be the model that I would have catchers look at. I'm going to have to pull some stuff out on him as well. I'm always, I'm always interested in watching yeah. that type of stuff. Well, I, I, I kept you longer, um, than I, than I had promised you. How do you want to tie it up today? How do you want, what, what do you want to leave the audience with today? 
Well, I think uh, we talk a lot about the negative news on our podcast, the negative things that are going on, and unfortunately they are because, in my opinion, they're they're harmful to the game, whether it's football or baseball, all this uh, analytical statistical information that's invading it. But what we have to celebrate now that the calendar is turned is that famous saying, pitchers and catchers report tomorrow. Yeah. And that's, that's always kind of a fun time. I mean, I can remember as a kid going to the movies and they'd show the old black and white movie tone highlights and it would be pitchers and catchers report tomorrow. I love it. Yeah. Cause we're what about two weeks away. Yeah. I mean, there's there's guys down there nowadays. They work out the year round, but as far as official uh, official workouts, yeah, probably it's getting a little earlier every year because you know the season used to open mid April. Now it opens late March. Yeah, there's all sorts of now we have the World Baseball Classic as well, and uh, and we have all sorts of intermittent games. Uh, I think the Dominican League is going on as well. Yeah, so it's. I, I get excited by I saw that the other day on social media. It was like 24 days till pitchers and catches. I was like, oh, my gosh. I didn't realize it was coming up that quick, but we are in February right now, February 1 today. Yeah, there's no day like it when you've been uh, working in the off season and you're up north in Minnesota or Michigan. And, man, you get down across that Florida line, get your ball suit on and get that glove out here and the ball hit the glove. There's no feeling like it for a baseball player. Oh, and the bones loosen up in a hurry when it's warm out. And, well, it was a great show today, Jim, and good luck with your speech tonight. I'm, uh, I know they're going to love it up there, and uh, they won't remember me. It's been too long since I've been in the state of Alabama, but uh, <laughs> I was that fiery Yankee. I used to get guys coming to practice. I ran practices at 5.30 in the morning, and uh-huh. uh, they, uh, it was hot down there no matter what time of year. And uh, I figured, hey, I'm a young head coach. I'm going to have to deal with discipline issues. If these kids can go out and – party at night and still get through my 5:30 practices god bless them but uh i used to have a crowd come in partially i thought because they wanted to see with this this new this young basketball genius they just wanted to hear me talk because i talk so differently than everybody oh, yeah so <laughs> and uh they, they i told them they're like i don't understand what you're saying i said right just like i do with you guys here's an index card yeah the words i say write them down and we'll translate afterwards we'll go get some coffee <laughs> and i'll tell you what i meant but uh yeah. no great great show um, with Cotts Corner here today, episode 436, uh, a lot on Dan Campbell. I encourage people to go to Jim's Facebook post and take a look at that. Well-written, um, and, and I'm glad you did that. Jaw Bats, thank you. RVG at checkout, great maple bats. I, I recommend them highly. Uh, millions, we appreciate your marketing help. Uh, we're getting an influx, and you guys saved me. I appreciate you coming on board and helping us out. And then uh, Sports Podcast Group in the Webbies. I wish we could flood the ballots, but there's no ballots to flood, but we did get nominated, and I appreciate your part. And that, Jim, as well, uh, with what you do on the show here. But uh, the Hall of Famer, Jim Cott. Jim, thank you again. Enjoyed it, Dave. Thank you. Enjoy Montgomery. Thanks.